Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I'm grateful for another gorgeous day in the Garwood Hacienda. I hope you are grateful for another day at your house as well. All right. Um, today we're going to be going into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it is uh, contains a favorite passage of mine where Paul is going to be talking about the resurrection. Now, he's uh, covered a lot of territory in this letter so far. And here he's going to apparently address an issue that there were some people saying that there is no resurrection or that the resurrection was already has already come and gone. And that if you're still alive, you missed it. You can imagine you can imagine the dismay in the lives of these people. Plus, the resurrection in and of itself was something that was kind of difficult for the Greco-Roman society to wrap themselves around. Less so the Jews, because they have stories in their, in their histories of people being raised from the dead. And uh, so they, they, they don't have a problem believing that God can do stuff like that. But the Greco-Roman society, it was a little, that doctrine would be a little weird. So, so let's get started. Chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, and if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise, you've believed in vain. Hmm. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Let's go back up a second. I gotta, I gotta address something here. I, to me, it's one of those elephant in the room conversations. I personally believe in what's called eternal security, the security of the saints, um, in that once God saves you, you are saved forever. Um, and I have I can back that up with lots of scriptural references from words of Jesus himself. And But at the same time, I've got to be honest, there's passages of scripture where there are hints of something else. And this is one of those. He said, uh, I want to remind you the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. That's one of those things that reminds me that I just don't know everything. I am still totally, utterly convinced that when Jesus says that the, everybody that God has given to him, he will that, that he will keep to the end. Um, I believe when he says the in John chapter ten that uh, the Holy Spirit draws, and we're in the palm of His hand, and no one can escape. I I get I believe that. I believe what Paul says later on in Romans and in Ephesians, uh, etc. That that our Salvation is the most secure thing in the entire cosmos. But I read a verse like this that hints at the fact that maybe some of them could fall away. Does that mean that they were saved and then they're not saved? 
Or does that mean that their their initial belief wasn't a saving belief? In other words, it was, uh, I, I can't, I don't know what it was. But there's enough hints in the scripture to keep me honest. And I have to come before God and say, God, I don't understand this. When Jesus said this, and then Paul says something like this, is one wrong, one right? Or how do they fit together somehow? I have to be honest when I'm reading scripture. And so when I read something like this, it puts me to my knees. I ask God for clarification. And also I check my salvation. Am I? You know, I just want to make sure that I'm not falsely believing something that that's wrong or, you know, it, it makes you check. It, it's like a, a physical checkup. This does a spiritual checkup on me. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. Hmm. But what I received, I passed on to you as, as a first importance. In other words, this is it. This is the primary thing. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, and most of whom are still living, by the way. And he's saying, look, you could check with them. There are still living witnesses to this event, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that would be Jesus' brother, I believe, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. We know the story of Paul. Church has been launched. He starts persecuting the church. He was there at the stoning, the killing of Stephen, the uh, the deacon. And he was responsible for the death and the jailing and the imprisonment of uh, many Christians. And then he goes on to say, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Now, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. Christ died for us, resurrected on the third day. Mm. Now, when Paul's talking about one being abnormally born, uh, he's included in the list of the apostles. But he came way after the fact, didn't he? on the road to Damascus when he was first saved. Then he went off to Tarsus for about six, eight, maybe 10 years before Barnabas brought him back into the game. And he says, I worked harder than all of them. Well, uh, the book of Acts pretty much center, uh, the last half of the book of Acts is all about Paul. And the fact that um, he probably wrote, well, not probably, he did. He wrote most of the New Testament. Uh, Paul was given a huge task to fulfill. And even Peter recognized his his works his words as scripture. So um, Paul, who was the enemy of the church, became the preeminent apostle of all the church, especially Asia Minor, Greece, and Rome. Now, Paul's going to start addressing the issue at hand. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Remember, look up here, 5, 6, 7. He said, 
He appeared to Cephas after, you know, when he was resurrected. He appeared to Cephas, to the 12. He appeared to more than 500, and then to James, and then finally to Paul. So if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? There's all these witnesses. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. The resurrection is the heart and soul of our faith. If there is no resurrection, nothing else matters. Nothing else is any good. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Hmm. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He's setting the scene here for something that's really important. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything's been put under him, it is clear this doesn't include God himself, who has put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? That's kind of curious. I did some research on that. Nobody really knows what Paul's talking about here. Perhaps there were some people who were baptizing themselves on behalf of relatives who were believers and, and had not been baptized. Uh, maybe there, you know, there's any number of scenarios here. But apparently... There were people being baptized on behalf of dead people. He's saying, if there's no resurrection, why are you even doing that? What's the point of that? Baptism uh, can mean one of a couple different things. You, you're baptized. The Baptists believe that when you go under the water, it's like dying. And when you come back up, it's being resurrected into a new life. That the waters of baptism is a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ. So, in that picture, why why would you even baptize yourself with somebody else if there is no resurrection? What's the point? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. And yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, he's saying, if there's no resurrection, then everything I've been preaching to you is foolishness and stupid. And if I get thrown into the stadium to be 
to fight wild animals for the entertainment of the people in the stadium, which is what they were doing to some Christians. If that happens to me, and I'm doing it because I believe something that isn't true, isn't that stupid? Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, he's actually quoting a line from a play, I believe, from that time frame. And what he's talking about is those who believe that there's no resurrection, is they equate with the bad company. Good character equates with the people who are believers. Bad company corrupts good character. Don't hang out with people who say there is no resurrection because they will taint your character. You know, somebody told me once, um, when you're standing on a chair and you want to pull somebody up, it's easier for them to pull you off the chair than it is to, for you to pull them up to your up onto your chair. When we hang around with people who don't believe in the resurrection, it'll be far easier for them to pull you down than it will be for you to ever convince them there is a resurrection. So bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought to and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. There's people in your body that are just plain ignorant. They're telling you there's no resurrection. And Paul says, there's shame here. They shouldn't even be there. Why are you letting them in? The purpose of church is to, is to celebrate the resurrected Lord. If there's no resurrection, why do we even go? Why church? Why anything? If there's no resurrection, nothing, none of what we do at church makes sense. Everything we do at church centers on that. And that's why, honestly, for centuries, people have tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. Because if they can disprove the resurrection of Jesus, they have killed the Christian faith. And nobody has been able to kill off the resurrection story. So that's what Paul is saying here. Now, so then he says, all right, well, let's, part of the problem is they, they, people are having trouble trying to imagine what a resurrected body would be like. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come with? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined, and each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies. There are earthly bodies. The splendor of heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differs from stars in splendor. So it's going to be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a natural body. All right, I've got a little video here I want to show you. And this video represents, I think, a really good example of what Paul is talking about here. Let's take a look. 
In the Facebook Live version of this podcast, I show a video of seeds that are germinating as an example of something new coming out of something that's old. It was a powerful little video. So keep that thought in your mind over this next section. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. These seeds represent us. What is coming out of the seeds is the same thing as what the seed was, but it's totally different. It's the same, but different. Does that make sense? Out of the perishable comes the imperishable. The seed holds the hope of what the future will bring. We who are believers in this body, this body will go away. This body will vanish and a new body will be given. Much like what you see here. Isn't this amazing? Out of the seeds come these glorious plants. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. The fact that we have this proves there's that. That's what Paul is saying. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The seed comes first. The plant came second. The first man was the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I don't know if that means, I kind of think that we're going to be very recognizable when we get to heaven. We're still, I'm still going to be me. I think I'll be a slimmer me, a younger me. Don't know. It'd be kind of cool. I do know this, that, Perhaps the best example of this is what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and they go up in the mount and Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus and prophesy to Jesus about what's to come in his last week. And Moses and Elijah were recognizable as Moses and Elijah. But they were obviously in their spiritual bodies because they'd been dead for several hundred years. So I I think our new body is going to be amazing. I think it's going to be recognizable. And when I die and go home and you die and go home, when we see each other, we'll recognize each other. Um, our new body won't have the weaknesses of the old body. I won't have congestive heart failure. Um, my ankles won't swell all the time. Um, I'll probably be able to walk a good long distance without uh, without getting tired, our new bodies are going to be amazing. 
So, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This thing here, this body that I have, I can't go into heaven with it. I need a new one. I have to have the new body come out of the old body, like those plants out of the seeds. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We won't all sleep, but we'll be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The seed gives birth to the new body. We're going to be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Think about that moment. Paul later on says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Snap of a finger. In the twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed. Glory, I cannot wait. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You know, if you have no hope of life on the other side of death's curtain, death can be an ominous uh, thing, an enemy, which you know you will never defeat. Everybody has to die. Everybody's going to die. Everybody has to pass through death's curtain. But if you have the hope of the gospel and the hope of a, of a new body where you shed the old and put on the new, then death is not a horrific thing that it used to be. It's a door. It's a door into Narnia. It's like that backside of that, that uh, coat closet in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's, I close my eyes here, open my eyes there. The sting is gone. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death has no victory over me. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death we experience every day with the sin in our life because that's what death is. Death is separation. Physical death is a separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is a separation of the spirit from God. And sin is a result of this separation from God. So our day-to-day, the only sting death has in my life is the sin I suffer through every day. The sin of my words, the sin of my thoughts, the sin from the attitude of my heart, the sin that I experience every day, that's the only sting that death has for me. But glory be to God, as I walk through each day, there is no ultimate victory. There's no victory in death. Death has no victory over me. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that the labor in the Lord 
is not in vain. Nothing we do in the name of Jesus is in vain. No matter how small, how insignificant you may think it is, nothing we have done in the name of our God is in vain. Nothing we have done in the name of our God is useless. As you go through life learning to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you go through life learning to love your neighbor as yourself, everything you do under that banner is of purpose and is of use. And please rest assured, there is a resurrection. Our God, our Lord Jesus, was resurrected and we will be resurrected. And we have waiting for us a new body. One that won't hurt. One that won't ache. One that will not tempt or falter. There is a glorious resurrection for us. All right. I love that passage of scripture. This is Mr. G. Here's my coffee. Kiddos, I am out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye.